How many of us know that life is what happens in between our promises? What do I mean by that? Well, with almost every single rite of passage in our lives, there is some kind of promise to do what is right. In every single rite of passage in our lives, there's always some kind of promise to do what is right. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 10, we are going to see after this remarkable hand and move of God that the people of God are feeling led to make a promise, an oath, a commitment, and a covenant. Now that word covenant is a biblical term. In fact, it's a very important biblical term, but it's not really a term that we tend to use very often nowadays. Whereas we're familiar with a legal contract, which is between two people, a covenant is a spiritual agreement between both people and the God that created them. And this group of people here in Nehemiah chapter 10 are going to make a covenant out of a response to God's amazing grace. Now, the closest thing that we have to a covenant in our day and age is probably marriage. When we, before God, friends, and family, made a vow. And one of the joys and one of the greatest aspects of my calling as a pastor is to walk through couples as they prepare, not just for a wedding ceremony, but for the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. And as you can imagine, these couples, a lot of them young, are very excited about their future, very excited about each other. And what my job, my responsibility is, is to, yes, fan the flame of that joy that the Lord has brought them together and is going to make them one flesh, but also for them to truly understand the weight of the words they're about to say. Because let's be honest, for those of us who are married or who have been married, we had no idea what we were agreeing to at the time, did we? When young people come forward, especially young people, none of them ever think that they're going to be one of the statistics. None of them on their wedding day think that, okay, I'm going to try this out for like two months. It's going to be like a new car. I'm going to take it for a spin. If I don't like it, I'm going to trade it in and maybe for one of the bridesmaids. Who knows? People don't think that way. At least I hope they don't. Even, even the couples that have the biggest red flags leading up into their wedding day, almost all of them believe that they are going to be the ones that live a life together in unity, loving each other. Tragically, I've seen it even eight years as a pastor here at this church where we've married people and tragically we've seen those marriages dissolve and then get divorced. No one ever thinks they're going to be the statistic. That's why here in this passage in Nehemiah, you have God's people that heard God's word, and they are going to try and do what their forefathers could not do. They think they're going to be the difference. And what we're going to see, even as we study Nehemiah chapter 10, is that it won't take long. In fact, it only takes several weeks. In fact, it only takes three chapters before everything that they just said, they are now not doing. How many of us know that life is lived in between promises, but we also have to deal 
with the reality of broken promises. We start out with good intentions, maybe the best of intentions. And yet what happens is we fail, we stumble, we fall, and we have to deal with the fallout of these unmet expectations and the devastating consequences of people who are unfaithful. This is the world we live in. Once again, God is going to reveal that we don't have to make God's word relevant. It always has been. It always will be. What we're going to do is we're going to teach it and then see how it leads us to not only an awareness of our lives today, but lead us to the foot of the cross. What we see here in Nehemiah chapter 10 has to be connected to the end of Nehemiah chapter 9. So hopefully everyone's Bible is still open. Let's look at the last verse of the preceding chapter because this will help us understand what we're about to enter into. Verse 38, Nehemiah chapter 9 says this, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let's stop right there. Because of all this, what is the this? The this is really remarkable. For nine chapters now, we have seen the Lord raise up a governor, an architect, and a leader in Nehemiah. And he has done something that no one thought he could do. It was the Lord working through him to rebuild and repair the walls around Jerusalem. Why? Why do we build walls and why do we build buildings? So people can come in, and not just people, but here in Nehemiah, exiles, people who had lost their identity, who had lost their land, who they thought had lost any hope of returning home. They're now home, and something miraculous happens. The people are ready to worship. You understand that the buildings of any kind of worship building, the walls are not just to support the roof. The walls are so that the people might come in and find refuge as they worship. And what we see here is that the people, these exiles, these people that knew the toll and the burden of rebellion, they come home and they cry out and we say, we want the law. We want the word of God. And they say to Ezra, read it to us. And for six hours, they listen and it's taught to them and it so works inside of them that they want to repent of their sin, return back to God, turn from their sin. They want to confess the ways that they have failed. Not only they have failed, but the generations before them have failed. You see, it's not enough for this generation to just want things from God. They want to be right with God. And now they want to make an external commitment of their internal desire. Is that a bad thing? No. There's a place for contracts. There's a place for oaths. There's a place for covenants today. And yet we deal with the constant, undeniable reality that we are so quick to make promises and we are so easy and lax in breaking those promises. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to sign contracts when we enlist the service of people organizations, whoever it may be. I mean, even when you get an online service, you're downloading an app on your phone, it asks you to click if you agree to all of its stipulations, right? Which, by the way, 
none of us read, right? It's a long list of things that we're just too busy and too bored with. In those stipulations, it could say that we are giving half of our savings to this online service. It could say that we are enlisting ourselves in indentured servitude. It could say, I'm even willing to shave off my right eyebrow. But we don't care. We click agree because we have to have Angry Birds 5 now. We know what it's like to agree, but to not really know the implications of what we're agreeing to. These people understand. They're not getting pushed into anything that they don't understand. I heard a story of a billionaire. He was an entrepreneur. He was a philanthropist. And he got a really bad health diagnosis. So he had all of his friends and all of his family over to his massive mansion. And they all gathered around his Olympic-sized pool. And in this story, he filled the pool with dozens of alligators. And he said, anyone who's willing to swim from that side of the pool to the other side of the pool is willing, I will give him either $100 million or the keys to my mansion. All of a sudden, all they heard was a splash. Somebody is in the water swimming as fast as he can. And you hear the clamps and you hear all the alligators' jaws snapping at him. But he actually makes it to the other side alive and unfazed and unhurt. He gets up out of the water and the billionaire says to him, what do you want? You want the money or you want the mansion? And he says, I don't want either. I want to know who pushed me in the water. <laughs> These people aren't getting pushed into anything. You like that? You like how I did that? <laughs> These people hear this oath and this promise. And they are willing to do what they think is necessary to do. This person that was pushed into the water is an exception. Often what we do is we say yes without fully knowing its consequences, without fully knowing the sacrifice. I mean, how many of us, even on our wedding day, and I remember it. I remember when I married the best girl in the whole world. I remember that day, and I remember when she walked down the aisle. She looked so beautiful, and I was surrounded by all my friends and family, loved ones, and she was crying, and then I started crying, and I started thinking, okay, this is it. This is all happening. This is really going down. I'm saying yes to her, and when I say yes to her, I say no to every other girl out there, and my knees started to wobble even as my eyes started to get misty. And I started to cry, not necessarily because of all the girls that were, I was going to miss out on, but all the girls that were going to miss out on me. <laughs> Just kidding. If anyone knew on their wedding day what life was going to throw at them, they wouldn't just be crying. They wouldn't just have their knees wobbled. I mean, talk to some of the families in this church that have been faithful 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Now, on the front end, if they knew, they probably would have ran away. But because of God's grace and his faithfulness, because of his perseverance, they know the blessing, but they know also that it's all God's grace. When we come to this covenant that the people of God are about to make, we're going to see that this is not possible without the grace of God. In fact, 
these people will stumble and will fall in a very short amount of time. So the covenant and the idea and its conception is proclaimed. Now it leads to names. People not just saying it's a good idea, but people willing to sign on the dotted line. So that's why as we jump now to chapter 10, let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, on the seals of the covenant are the names of Nehemiah the governor. And then as we just heard, it has the names of princes, Levites, and priests, nobles, those with real names, those with real stories, those who are willing, even though they were influencers, they were willing to put their name on the dotted line and to say, yes, I am willing to make this commitment. Now, it's very, very important here that the first name is Nehemiah. That sometimes the influencers need someone to influence them. I know full well, and this is the glory of the gospel, that God loves to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That God uses those who we wouldn't expect to be his greatest ambassadors and champions. At the same time, there's people like Nehemiah who are in places of influence. Not only does that influence the people, but that influences the other influencers. So we see this long list of names, which most of which I cannot pronounce, so we're just going to jump down to verse 28. <laughs> people that were willing to write their name on the dotted line and say, yes, we will do this. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into, what does it say, church? Into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. What do we see here? Let's take a minute, right, real quick. We see that it's not only the leaders, the Levites, the priests, the governor, but it's the people. Everyone is joining together in agreement of this covenant. It's very similar to past covenants, some of which I have no doubt they just heard because they've been studying the Torah. They've been studying God's law. And perhaps it was the meeting of God at the, at the base of Mount Sinai, right before the Lord unveils and reveals his Ten Commandments, as we call them, where the people of God said to God all together with one voice in unison, and I'm sure at the time they probably meant it. It says this in Exodus 19, verses 7 and 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, right, the leaders, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you remember our study in Exodus? How did that play out? There was a golden calf being made in the back. Even as they said, I do and I will, somebody was making an idol. Is this not us? Is this not our story? But here's the challenge. Is that we can fall into the trap of thinking... Well, if, as long as I'm not like my mom or my dad or my grandparents or my forefathers, then I and we will be different. We are different. I talk to young couples today, and they say, as long as I don't do what mommy and daddy did, I'm good. And then life finds a way. 
of discouraging them in their promises, of distracting them from what they're called to do. And then, yes, it leads to division and, tragically, the breaking of some of these most important promises. What we see here in Nehemiah chapter 10 is that these people are willing to not only say something very dramatic. I mean, think of it. They just heard all the Torah and all the law read. And they actually believe that they can be obedient to all of it. That's the first red flag. The first red flag is that the Spirit of God is so moved in these people that they are filled with inspiration. You understand that we, we don't just make commitments to God in our desperation, right? It's not just when we're in trouble. How many of us have been pulled over by a police officer, and then all of a sudden we start doing all kinds of negotiating with God, right? God, you get me out of this ticket, and I'm going to start going to church maybe twice a month, right? Start putting a little something extra in the plate. Start being nicer to my kids. We start negotiating. Sometimes it's even more serious than that. But it's not just in moments of desperation that we plead and negotiate with God. No, it's in fact in moments of inspiration. How many of us, when we were just overwhelmed with the Spirit of God, we made bold declarations and we made drastic decisions. And those were filled with the best intentions. That's not a bad thing. You see what happens, though? We start out inspired because the grace of God has descended upon our hearts, and we understand just how good and beautiful and glorious he is. But then we get so comfortable, so used to doing this by our own strength because we made a covenant, right? We signed the document. It's going to be the document, the sealed document with my name on it that's going to carry me. No, in fact, it won't. It won't. It'll be the one who led you and inspired you to sign that document. They thought that they could obey all the commandments, but they now are going to focus on just three. So all eyes back in the Bible. Verse 30 says this. We're going to see three commandments promised here in Nehemiah 10, and then three commandments broken weeks later in Nehemiah 13. Verse 30, Nehemiah chapter 10 says this. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Number one, intermarriage. Number two, verse 31. And if the people of the land bring in goods or grain or on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. That's a remarkable statement. We'll talk about it in a second. Verse 32 is the third one. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the original grain, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Let's pause right there. What they're doing is they're saying yes to all the law, but they are focusing on three things. And we do this too. We know that we tend to have chinks in our armor. There's a weak link in the chain somewhere. And we tend to go to battle right there. And oftentimes just in our own strength, in our own flesh. And we say, all right, God, yes, I'm going to try and do good by you and do right by you every single day in every single way. But boom, 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 here's what I'm really going to focus on. So these three things, the first one is intermarriage. 
This was a huge problem for this generation. They were forbidden to worship the gods of their pagan tribes, their neighboring nations. And what led them to do that more than anything else was marrying into these tribes, into these nations that worshiped these other false gods. The first two commandments, worship the Lord God alone and do not worship any man-made idol. It was marriage that was the vehicle for them to leave their first love. So when it says intermarriage, it's less about ethnicity and more about spirituality. It's less about race and it's more about idolatry. Do not. They, they're committing themselves. We will not marry with other tribes. The second one is the Sabbath. And not just the Sabbath, not just committing to take a day of rest, but they are committing to do which was never done in the Old Testament, and that's practice a Sabbath for the land and a declaration of canceled debts in Jubilee. What a powerful economic system God had devised in his Torah. And we have no evidence anywhere that it was ever actually fulfilled. Not yet, anyway. So they're willing to say, we're going to do the Sabbath. Not only Sabbath, we're going to take a year off. And then not only the year off, but we're also going to cancel debts. Number three, from verses 32 through 39, they make nine commitments. Nine commitments in seven verses to the house of God. That's a really, really committed group of people to a place of worship. So here it is. Marriage, number one. Sabbath, number two. The house of God, number three. They're very excited. They're very motivated. They're very inspired. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, shall we? Just, it would seem, weeks, if not a couple months later. This is how the book and the story, at least in Scripture, of Nehemiah ends. Such inspiration, such divine intervention, and yet this covenant that they make doesn't even last a little while. Verse 13, what was the first way that they said they are going to be different? They're going to take the third way we mentioned was the house of God. So here we see it in verse 11 of Nehemiah chapter 13. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Jumping down to verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath. And then jumping to verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. In all the exact ways they said they were going to be faithful, they were unfaithful. In a short amount of time. So... Is it wrong to have good intentions and maybe the best of intentions? No. Is it wrong to make promises and oaths and covenants? No. But what do we see in this? We see ourselves, do we not? It's like a mirror. Are we reading this or is this reading us? What's going to break the cycle? It's easy to make promises. Easy to do occasional good things, but where's the power? Where's the true life-giving power to overcome this cycle of defeat, this cycle of unfaithful failure? 
It actually comes not in Nehemiah, but it comes in the prophet Ezekiel. Can we take a look at this verse? Gentlemen, let's put this up on the screen. Ezekiel chapter 36 says this, talking about a new covenant that would come. A covenant that is not between the people and God, but a covenant made with God to the people. If you can read this, the Lord is saying of something future, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you, what does it say, church? And I will give you, what does it say, church? A new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What did Jesus say of the Pharisees of his age? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful, holy, religious on the outside, but on the inside filled with dead man's bones, filled with a dry, hard heart. The Spirit of God changes us from the inside out. So now that as the other prophets said, the law is written on our hearts. We not only read about it in his word, but we know it from our inside out. This is what the Spirit of God does. So I don't know if you know this at this church. This is kind of why we don't use the word recommit or rededicate. There's nothing against it, right? People say it all the time. I rededicated my life to the Lord, and then I rededicated my life to the Lord again, and then I rededicated my life to the Lord again, and then I recommitted my, and then I recommitted, and then I recommitted. Part of what makes the language a little unhelpful is because in the end, the Bible does give us a word. It's called repent. You see, when we talk about rededicating ourselves, it really is the emphasis is on ourselves. But when the Spirit of God is working in our hearts, we don't return to ourselves. Lord, help us. We return to Him, and He changes us from the inside out. What we see here in the end of Nehemiah is a foreshadow and a promise of one who was to come that would fulfill the covenant that you just heard in Ezekiel. So let's jump down back into Nehemiah, and what we're going to see is that the Lord makes a promise, or the people make a promise, and the Lord's going to fulfill it. it. says here, if we're jumping down now to verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, and to also bring to the house of God, to the priests who minister in the house of God, the firstborn, what does it say? Of our sons. I'm in verse 36. Of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and the firstborn of our, uh, the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. Here's the big idea. When we don't give God our first fruits, what happens? He only gets our leftovers. They are committing themselves to give of their first of everything. Their firstborn they're going to dedicate to the Lord, right? The first of their crops, the first of their work, the first of their worship, all of it. First and foremost, God, you get the best. And what they fail to do, God has done. 
Think of it this way. Have you ever marveled at why the Bible says God is the father of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, his firstborn son? Jesus has always existed. He is not only the son of God, but God the son, preexistent from eternity. Why is he called son? Why is he called firstborn? Why is he called begotten? Part of it is this, is we fail and neglect to give of our first fruits to the Lord. What does he do? He's not only saying that Jesus is preeminent over everything by being his son, but he's also doing what we never did. He's giving his firstborn. Now, when we come to the Lord's table and we think about the Last Supper, we remember that Jesus was instituting a new gospel ordinance for his people. But it was the Passover meal. And now, instead of a lamb being sacrificed, Jesus was going to be the Lamb of God. Instead of him overseeing this beautiful tradition as high priest, the high priest actually becomes the atoning sacrifice. So, what they are promising to do is to bring the best of their grain offerings. What does Jesus do as the bread of life? He says, this is my body. This bread broken for you. More than that, these people are saying, we're going to give you the first of our fruit, the first of our wine. And Jesus says, this wine, I want you to think of it as my blood spilt for you. All of this wrapped up in the language of something new. A new covenant. Isn't your Bible amazing? In the sense that these people are making a covenant with God. In the end, it would only be the covenant that Jesus Christ would make with his people that will outlast all of our broken promises. Think of it this way. The new covenant is the fulfillment, the completion, and the improvement of the old covenant. The new covenant of Jesus is not just empty words like we tend to do. It's action, not just sentiment, but sacrifice, not just empty boast. Jesus offers his body and his blood. God gave us his firstborn in Christ. God gave us the grain offering in Christ. God gave us the wine offering in Christ. God makes us his house in Christ. God grants us forgiveness, Sabbath, an eternal jubilee in Christ Jesus. Jesus was betrayed. Why? For all of our covenantal betrayals. Jesus cancels our debt, grants us true, true rest, and leads us into an eternal jubilee. Jesus' body was broken so that we could become the body of Christ. Isn't our God good? Here is what is very disconcerting. I envision myself being in Nehemiah's position. Nehemiah 13 ends with, it seems, all of his labors for knots. Yes, he's built a nice building. But in the end, the people aren't doing what they said they were going to do. Nehemiah 13 ends on a somber note. In fact, your whole Old Testament ends on a very somber note. Think of it this way, church. The way Nehemiah ends is similar to how your Old Testament ends. With no evidence that in any time or any season of Israel's history, 1,000 years 
of continued mistakes, a family of a thousand years of continual stumbles, and you thought your family had issues, right? In the Old Testament, we're not given any kind of inkling that humanity can make any kind of covenant that will reconcile us permanently and forever with a good and holy God. It's a cliffhanger, and they're just left to wander and to wonder if they're secure in God's love. Then comes Jesus Christ. Then comes the new covenant. And we don't trust in ourselves. We don't proclaim ourselves. We lift high the name, the king, the one who could take all of our broken promises. But even if we fail with the best of intentions, he cannot, he will not, and he does not. Amen? Amen. Let's pray before we come to the table. Heavenly Father, before we do something external and religious, before we come to the table as we often do on the first Sunday of the month and we respond to your word and we remember your son, as we come forward and we turn from our sin and we remember the cross on which it was atoned for, let us now, God, not just do 